So uh, thank you so much uh, for having me here. And we're going to talk about Hinduism. Um, and uh, if you have any questions at all, stop me at any time. Okay, I don't want this be, to be me just talking at you. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say, what you think. And you've learned something already. Um, for 40 years, I've been practicing uh, uh, this faith. Let's call it faith. Um, and I get a little bit of different perspective, uh, perspective when you live in India for a long time and live with Indians. Uh, rather than what you hear. Now, first of all, there is no such word as Hindu. Or at least there wasn't. But about 500 years ago, the people in who, who were living in what is now Pakistan, there was this river that ran to the north of India and split, it, split the two countries. It was called the Sindhu River. Now, the people that lived in Pakistan had a bit of a speech impediment. You know, like people in, in Boston, they, they, they say, pock the car and whatever. So they had a speech impediment. And they called the people on the south side of that river Hindus. They couldn't say Sindhu. They're Hindus. So that's how the word got started. About 500 years ago, Muslims, looking at these people down there, they're Hindus. So basically that's what, how it got started. People want to know sometimes, uh, <clears throat> do the Hindus believe in many gods? What is the name for that? I was trying to think of that. There's polytheism. polytheism. Monotheism is believing in one God. And the answer is yes and no. <laughs> it's a little confusing. You have, to, you have to get to know the Indians to see how they really think. But yes, they do. However, they, they see that there are different gods like uh, there's like Ganesh. Ganesh is the half boy with the elephant head. You know, you see Ganesh. There's Lord Shiva. There's Lord Vishnu. There are there's so many more. Durga. There's so many. And these different entities get worshipped by the Hindus in different ways. Now, all of these personalities that I just mentioned are like department heads. You know, if you go to uh, a company, you've got uh, the Vice President of Sales, the Vice President of Human Resources, the Vice President of Quality Control. You've got all these department heads. But there's one guy who runs the show. You know, there is the President and Chief Executive Officer. So in the Hindu belief, there are so many of these different personalities, and they call them gods. And all the Hindus, practically all of them know that uh, some of them there, there's always differences of opinion. But basically, they all know that these aren't like Shiva. He's not the supreme personality of Godhead. Okay? They don't think that Ganesh created the cosmic manifestation. Okay? They recognize that the supreme, the one who created everybody, including the demigods, those department heads I'm talking about, is Krishna. So Krishna is the supreme God. So, and I'm, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, why, why would you worship somebody that's not the supreme God? You know, why would you worship a department head? Okay. So, um, and I would give you, but I'll spell these words. I was going to write them out for you, but I'll spell these words. There is 
one driving force and something that makes Hinduism very much like other religions. And that driving force, the desired prize, let's call it, is called, uh, in Sanskrit, punya. It's P-U-N-Y-A, punya. In other words, when I'm a Hindu and I go to the temple, whether I'm worshiping Ganesh or Shiva or Durga or whomever, all this multitude of gods, um, I'm really looking for one thing. <clears throat> I want something. I want that personality to give me something. I want good health. I want money. I want fame, success. You see, I want a a, a beautiful wife. There are actually demigods that you can worship in the uh, Hindu faith to get a beautiful wife, to get uh, productive and intelligent children. There are certain uh, sacrifices that they do to get all of these things. So they're wanting things and they're approaching the Supreme or someone like the Supreme to get something in return, you see. Now this is very common uh, as we look at just about every religion. We all want something. Why do we approach God? Anybody want to offer? Why would, why would anybody want to approach God? I mean, you know, he's a really big guy. I mean, if he just moves the wrong way and he steps on you, you're squashed. I mean, you know, if he gets the slightest bit of anger, wow, you know. So, why? Why? Any, anybody want to venture a, a comment? Why? Why would anybody approach God? Acceptance. Acceptance. Okay. Yeah. So you want him to accept you. Um, why? I mean, certain people, if they don't feel acceptance from worldly things and from other people, they can feel alone. God is something they can run to, and immediately teach you that God will love you despite all the things that people don't like. Yeah. You know? So you need, sometimes you need, let's just cut to the chase, you need a friend. Yeah. You know? Well, there's lots of friends. You know, you've got lots of friends. But sometimes you need a real friend. In, in, in Sanskrit, there's the word called shuri. Shuri. Shuri means the real friend. Uh, there's different levels of friend. There's the bandhu. The bandhu is like an official friend. Uh, bandhu uh, is like your uncle. Your uncle may not be your best friend, but officially he's your friend. I mean, he's your uncle. You know, he always comes around Thanksgiving. He's a nice guy. He gives you something at Christmas. You're not best friends, but Officially, he's your friend. Then there's the Mitra. And the Mitra is a casual friend. Somebody you see passing in the hallway. You, Hi, how are you? You know, how are you today? You know, but you don't really, really go to them. And then the topmost of friends is called, called the Shuri. The Shuri is the person that you would call 3 o'clock in the morning when you're broken down on the side of the road in the rain. And you know that person's going to say, Hey, I'll be right there. Instead of, oh man, no, why did you call me? You know, the person says, hey, look, I'll be right there. You know, so out of book, we're there. So that is one of the, one of the important reasons that people approach God. It's a very advanced thought. Really. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't look to Him for that. So 
Uh, now, I just said him, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, because a lot of times when I give classes, somebody asks me, well, how do you know God's not a woman? How do we know? Any opinions? Is it possible God could be a woman? All right, let's take, let's define. What is the definition of God? God is, uh, let's say, uh, a lot of times I'm, I'm talking to uh, yoga groups, and they believe in all kinds of things. So we start out by saying, does everyone believe in the supreme Godhead? Okay, so the supreme Godhead. Now, our interpretation of what that is could be different. In India, and probably the rest of the world too, there's basically two schools of thought. Okay? God is a person, or God is just energy. But you can't define God. God is just this cosmic energy. No form, no personality, just energy. Okay. In uh, Sanskrit, those are called the Mayavadis. The Mayavadis in India believe that... Uh, there's just this energy of God, okay? And, and, and we're really all part of it, which we are, but I'm God too. I'm God, you're God, and I've just appeared in this form, and I've taken this, this form, and I'm having, uh, uh, I've been overcome by the illusory energy of the material world, but I'll work my way up and get spiritually advanced, and I'll go back and I'll be God again. So, many Mayavadis think like that. It's just all energy, like a bright light. It's called the Brahma Jyoti. In the Vedas, it's called the Brahma Jyoti. Dazzling effulgence is bright light. Okay? So the other school would be the personalists, basically the Vaishnavas. And they believe that God is a person. But a supreme person. Okay? Meaning that God has personality, He has forethought, He has a hand that you can hold. It may not be made of flesh and blood like ours, but it has a form and it has a substance. It's, instead of a material substance, it's a spiritual substance, but yet a form that you can hold. You can embrace Him. He can embrace you. You can have a conversation and a direct, friendly, loving relationship someone that you can go to. Well, go to God. The supreme go-to God. Okay. So, now we hear, this This sounds like two ends of a spectrum. Which one's right? Can anybody prove that one of these is right? Not really. Well, let's just say they're both right. There's no wrong. Because God is unlimited, right? Meaning, no limits. There is nothing that that entity does not have. Otherwise, how would it be God? So this entity, this supreme entity, has everything without any limitation whatsoever. In the Vedas, the Vedas are uh, uh, the books, like the Bibles, there's many Vedas. Uh, it's described that uh, uh, that God is unlimited, as we say, and He has this this quality called chintya beta beta tattva. 
the spiritual world is different from the uh, material world. In the material world, you're either one thing or another. You're either a Republican or a Democrat. You know, you're a, an American or a Canadian, or you're this or that. You see, in the spiritual world, chintya beta beta tattva means that God can be simultaneously one thing and the other at the same time. He can be one thing and something entirely different simultaneously. It's good to be God. Okay. So, if this all-powerful entity is unlimited, there is nothing he does not have. So he has to be both manifest and unmanifest at the same time. Now, for our material brains, we think, well, wait, how can that be? But we're talking the laws of the spiritual world. The spiritual world is eternal. The material world is temporary. See, things here are constantly changing. There, things are always the same, but they're still changing at the same time. See, the spiritual world is a very different place than this material world. So, we've got this God, <coughs> And he's available if you want to approach uh, the impersonal aspect of God. He's available. So he's also available if you want to approach the personal aspect. If you're looking for this friend, the best, the supreme friend. So we can understand why somebody would want to approach the supreme as the supreme friend. Why would somebody want to approach the Supreme as just energy, not having a personality or a form? Any ideas? Not everybody wants to get that close to the big guy. Okay. <clears throat> You've got a warmer feeling. A lot of people don't have that warm feeling. It's like, I know he's there, and I don't want to anger him. I'd like to make him happy because I want him to give me stuff. I want him to give him, I want him to give me good health. You see? I want him to, I, I want to be, um, according to the Vedas, the driving forces of the living entity, the things that make us do things are fame. I want, I want to be famous. Profit. I want money. I want to be able to buy Bill Gates and Warren Buffett at the same time. Fame, profit, adoration. I want to be adored. I want people when I walk down the street to just fall at my feet and adore me. And distinction. I want to be distinguished. I don't want to be like the rest of you guys. I want to be me. I want to be in my own category. So many of us have these feelings a little bit or a lot. So fame, profit, adoration, and distinction are the things that drive living entities to do things that they do. I want to get a better education because I want I want some profit. I mean I want to I want to have a better living and a better life than somebody who doesn't have an education. There's nothing wrong with that, you see? So there's a driving force. I want to become outstanding in my field. You could be a farmer. You know, a farmer's outstanding in his field. 
Yeah, I'm glad you thought that was funny. <laughs> Sometimes I laugh at more people say, <laughs> show that you're awake. <clears throat> Sometimes I use that and people look at me like, yeah. yeah. So I want to be outstanding. I want to be, in my field that I'm going into, I want them to build a monument. So this guy's the one who came up with this concept. But that's okay. I'm not putting it down. But you see the driving force that makes people give up themselves to achieve something, you see. It's kind of rare. Now, even uh, a lot of times when people say, well, I want to do something for, for my fellow man, you know, so I'm going to build a hospital. I'm, I'm very rich, and I'm already famous. So now I'm going to build a hospital, and I'm going to make sure my name is all over it, you know, in great big letters. So I want distinction. This isn't a sin, it's not a crime, but we can see the things that drive us to do the material activities that we do. Uh, so uh, then we could go a little further. People uh, approach God for fame, profit, adoration, distinction of different levels. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, in Hinduism, if you go to the chief of the gods, if you go to this Krishna, I don't know if you know much about Krishna. I didn't bring, I have a picture here on the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is one of the chief scriptures that uh, Hindus use. All Hindus believe in Bhagavad Gita. <clears throat> they don't all follow it. Uh, I have Christian friends that are Christians and they, they certainly believe in Lord Jesus Christ. But they haven't read the Bible since they were in you know, grade school or you know, junior high. You know, maybe a little bit. So. so many Hindus have read the Bhagavad Gita, but they don't, they don't really follow it. They, they have some other idea. So why do the Hindus not approach the Supreme? They all recognize, so they are kind of polytheistic and monotheistic at the same time. So why don't they go to Krishna? Because they're afraid. They're not afraid of Krishna. Krishna is known to the Hindus to be all attractive. He's the most beautiful. He's the most charming. He's the wittiest. He's the most fun. He's incredibly beautiful. And he steals your heart. One glance and you're just melted. You think, I don't want to think of anything but you. You're so wonderful. Wow, if I'd have known that you were like this, I would have never thought of anything else. To look at Krishna, he is so beautiful that you curse your eyelids and you have to blink. You think, for that split second, I'm not looking at you. You're so fantastic. And his attitude is kind of like, uh, according to the Shastras, Krishna's attitude is kind of like, yeah, you know, I am like that. You know, special to me. He's the most charming. So to Krishna, every living entity, and there are innumerable living entities, so every living entity, again, now he's got this achitya-veda-veda-tatka thing because he's God. Okay. Every living entity is his favorite. So you are his absolute favorite. And so are you. And so are you. All at the same time. Now, he can do that because he's God. And it's real and it's true. 
you're his absolute favorite. So, you've got this all-attractive, all-beautiful entity, the prize of everything. You can't think of anything you'd rather be around or to see or to experience. To be in his presence you get, you feel bliss. Blissful just to be with him. So, you would think, well, if he's that great, he's such a nice guy and he thinks I'm the best, well, why wouldn't the Hindus want to approach him if they know this about him? You got any ideas? Why? What's wrong with this? Sounds like a really good setup. Sounds like a pretty good God. Because I don't want to let go of my desire for punya. I, I, I don't want to give up my desire for fame, profit, adoration, and distinction. And I know that I have, if I approach this Krishna, He's going to steal my heart. Maybe not right away, but he's, a tri he's the supreme, he's the supreme tricker. He'll trick me somehow into giving up my material desires. Next thing you know, I'm all surrendered to him. Next thing you know, it's just me and him, and it's forever, and I don't think of anything else. But I don't want that. I want a different color Mercedes for every day of the week. You know? And I want a house bigger than this university. I want my children to grow up and be gazillionaires. I want a beautiful wife. I want health. You see? I want for me. Now this isn't bad. I'm not saying this is bad. I believe isn't, in the Lord's Prayer, isn't there... How does it go again, I remember? Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So this, you're gonna, I'm going to draw a similarity to the Hindus. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So in other words, hallowed, uh, praise your name. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, I want to do it your way. On earth as it is in heaven, I want, I want earth to respect and love you as much as they do in heaven. Now give us this day our daily bread. Okay? So in other words, enough about you. Okay, here's what I want. Okay, you got something to write with? Because this is what I want. Alright. I want daily bread. I want, I want you to protect me. Uh, keep me away from uh, uh, temptation. Lead me not into temptation. I don't remember the rest of it. I'm not picking on Christians. Okay. I believe that every path will ultimately take you to God. And I'll explain that later if I if I forget, you get me to remind me to, okay? So that's a difference. The Hindus are very similar. They know he's beautiful. Yes, yes. And if you go into a Hindu temple, uh, I was just in Knoxville, and there most of the ones in the United States are, are very similar. In the very center, you have Radha and Krishna. And then you have the demigods, Ganesh, Shiva different demigods in a semicircle around them. And they'll come in and they'll offer some to Shiva, they'll offer maybe to Ganesh, and they offer respects to Krishna, but they kind of you know, walk around him, you know, like, <laughs> keep him at arm's length because they don't want to get close to this guy. Not that he's mean or nasty, although he could kill any demon, you know, he could 
send atomic bombs out of his fingernails if he wanted to. He's the all-powerful Godhead. But he's just too doggone sweet. I'll become attracted to him and he'll take away all of my desires. So I'd rather keep him at arm's length. And worship his servants. Or Shiva. Shiva is very easily pleased. If I offer some offering to Shiva, he will give me whatever I want. Now we can see, um, I, I've observed this in, uh, in India when you're walking down the streets of the village, when uh, the shop openers, uh, the, sh I mean, the shop owners are opening their shops, they'll take, you know, like they're opening it up in the shop in India, it's kind of like a little, it's like going to a flea market. Okay, it's not like you're going into a building. It's a little stall along the, what do they call them, a kiosk, you know? It's a little, just a little thing. It's got some merchandise. It's covered with, with canvas. So they open the canvas up and they, they, now they're open for business, but they're in there and they take a stick of incense and they'll be offering it to a picture of Shiva or Ganesh. They'll open the empty cash register and they'll offer the incense in the cash register, you know? And they maybe cut up a little, some nice fresh fruit, and put it in front of the picture of Shiva, put the incense there. So, I mean, it's obvious. My dear Lord, please accept this humble offering, this nice incense that I bought for you. Uh, please send profit. Please let me have a profitable day, my Lord. See. Nothing wrong with that. Who are you going to go to? Who's the smartest person to go to? But some, someone in a supreme position. I mean, I, I could go, I could go to Dr. Smith and say, "Please make my day successful," and he could have some impact on my successful day. But he can't send money. He can't guarantee my business will be profitable. Nice guy, but you know. So we go to somebody who can fulfill these things. And what we see, what I've recognized over, what I've realized over the last 40 years of just witnessing, is it seems to work. These people get rich. I mean, I know, I, I know many Indians in America that came here with very, very little. They had enough to get here and enough to live on once they got here. Twenty years later, they've got these palatial houses. You know, they own six or eight hotels. They started out owning motels. Now they own Hiltons. Sixty percent of the, of the motel or the hotel beds in America are owned by Indians. 60%, probably more than that now. That was, I've, I've been saying that for over five years. And it started out, they were buying little rinky-dink motels. Now I know many that own not only Holiday Inns, but Marriott's and Hilton's and convention centers. And so something is working. Now, can I prove to you that Shiva is giving them this money or Ganesh? I don't know where it's coming from. But people came over here very close to paupers and you know, they're very, very, very rich. Uh, many of them incredibly rich. So, uh, Punya, they want to approach God to give me something. With respect, let me offer you worship, and I please take care of them. So, um, now let me back up a little bit. Why would anybody want to approach uh, the Supreme in the unmanifest? Let's say, let's say, I want to worship God as just energy, formless, with no personality. 
What would drive somebody to have that desire? Anybody want to take any, any guess? It's because, typically, from the people that I've talked to, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying that this is bad, but it's like, I want to have God in my life, but I don't want to get up close and personal with God. You see? I mean, I just want God to be the, the, uh, the universal energy. The universal energy that created and drives and owns everything. That universal energy is impersonal. It doesn't have a personality. It just is. And it always is. And someday I'll return to it and I'll merge with it. Now, as long as God has no personality and no form, then He can't ask me to do anything. If he can't ask you to do anything, he certainly can't ask you to do anything that I don't want to do. Okay? So in other words, I'm not in the mood to serve God. I'm self-serving. I want to serve me. And I want God there to give me the energy. He's the universal energy. He's giving the energy. He gives the energy to the Son. As long as he does his job, then everything's fine. But I don't want to get real close. Getting close is not... That means having a relationship. You know? You know? It's like going on a date. Going on a date and couldn't, couldn't a relationship could start from this, you know? I mean, getting serious. And, you see what I mean? So they want to stay casual. They want to stay meeker on the meeker platform. Casual relationship. Yes, God is there, God is all impersonal and so but keep in mind, God is that. And he is personal and everything in between. So we talked about uh, God being unlimited. If He is unlimited, He also has to be a sheep. He can't just be a he. He is a sheep. And He's a he at the same time. He's unlimited. He's, he's kind of interesting in that way. He's so interesting because He's totally unlimited. Now, His, um, his feminine form the chief feminine form, he has many, but the, the chief feminine form is Radha. R-A-D-H-A. Radha. Radha Radha. She is his pleasure potency. Now, uh, I'll explain it to you the way the Vedas explain it. God is so beautiful, let's say, now we're talking, we're, we're, we're back talking about Krishna. The chief of the demigods, the one who owns the the impersonal Brahma Jyoti, all of this is Him. Okay. Uh, God the Father, the ultimate Godhead. Okay. He's so beautiful and He's so charming and He's so wonderful. To be unlimited, how can just you observe Him? If He cannot observe Himself, then He has a limitation. But He's God, He has no limits. So He has to be able to observe Himself. Otherwise, you all, all of us, would be able to observe the most beautiful, the supreme, desirable object. And he can't. Because he is that. So he has energies, personalities, that he expands into. 
uh, same soul, different spiritual body. Now that same soul is same, simultaneously different, but also him. So it's separate. And this Radha form is his pleasure pose. And this is the original conception of the male-female relationship. She, as she observes him, loves him tremendously. Now he loves her tremendously. But the Vedas say that he can't understand her. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> the Supreme cannot understand his female relationship. You been there? <laughs> I'm not saying. <laughs> Tactful guy. He can't understand. Why? He can't understand how she loves him so much. He looks at her and he thinks, why? How is it that you can love me this deeply? And he's completely charmed. In other words, she is the controller. <laughs> now, is there any doubt why it works that way for everybody else? Because it works that way with the Supreme. She has anything she wants because he's just enamored by her. Or loved. She loves him so much. And so this is an eternal relationship. So sometimes I ask people, imagine, what would you do if you were God? If you weren't in it for the money, you know, the fame? What's the most desirable thing? Really, what, what do we want? All of this fame, profit, adoration, distinction, what do we want it for? The true driving force of all living entities is love. We all want love. And the more we think about it, we probably haven't meditated on it a great deal. What we want is real, eternal love. Not something that can kind of can go away or someone that can let me down. I want, um, I, don't, I don't hear much uh, uh, Western music, but sometimes I have to go into a store to buy something, you know, and you, you hear this, I, I hear these songs. And some of them I've heard before, and some of them I haven't, but I don't remember who they are. You hear, you know, when you go into a store, they're always playing music. And um, there was this one song by, I think it was Billy Joel, and he was talking about, uh, um, I don't care for clever conversation, da da da. You know what song I'm talking about? I think so. Uh, huh? I think so. But. It, but the main thing, the main theme seemed to be, I just want some, I, someone I can depend on. I love you just the way you are. See? Now that's what we all want when it comes to love. I want somebody that I can depend on. An emphasis on depend on, meaning my life, my soul. And once that's taken care of, once I have the perfect, eternal, most wonderful love, then all the weight is off my shoulders. I feel like I've I've scored everything now. Whatever else I get is just a plus because I, I've got this in my life. You see, and I uh, I sometimes ask people, you know, let's let's try to think about how important is love. Um, how many people would trade uh, love, give up this beautiful, perfect love that I'm talking about, for all the money in the world? Let's say you could be richer than Bill Gates, but have just maybe so-so affairs at best. Is that attractive to anybody? 
So in other words, you'd give up your wealth. All right, what, what, what if you could have the most perfect love that you can always depend on? And it's perfect in every way. But you're going to be poor all your life. Barely, barely just make it. Would you take that? Is that acceptable? Perfect love, but not much money. So most people would give up wealth. Most people would give up longevity. Would you rather live to be 90 years old or 100 years old and probably never have a really great love? Or would you rather have a fabulous love and die in your 40s? It's a tough question, isn't it? But a lot of people say, you know what? I go for the love. Because I'm 90 years old or 100 years old and I really don't have true love in my life. I've got all kinds of money. You know, I'm living forever. But gee whiz. There's only so many channels on TV. You know, and I get tired of these fair, the revolving door that is my relationship with the opposite sex. You see? So, if we analyze that and really think about our true nature, we are creatures of love. We want that more than anything. We really feel that we have to have it. And that's because that is our constitutional position as spirit souls. Now, let me ask the question. How many people in here believe that you have a soul? Join. All right. You don't believe you have a soul? All right, now, that was a trick question. How many of you believe you are a soul? Yeah, maybe. That was tacky, but I, I like to do that. We think we have a soul. Why do we think we have a soul? Does this bottle think it has a bottle? It's a bottle. It doesn't think it has a bottle. It's a bottle. I am a soul. I may think I have a soul because of my temporary misidentification with myself. I'm thinking that I am this body. I'm thinking that this is me. This is humanity. It's flesh and blood. It's getting very old. It's losing its health. Losing hair. Losing teeth. The clock is ticking, and it's going to die. But I don't believe I'm this body. I am the soul who drives the body. Now this is the Hindu philosophy. We're getting into kind of a nasty word that a lot of people don't like to hear, they don't like to talk about, but then a lot of people do like to talk about, and that's reincarnation. Okay. Or, if that's a word you don't like, let's use transmigration of the soul. A lot of people say, I don't believe in re reincarnation, but I can buy into this transmigration of the soul concept. I'm an eternal living entity. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, he's telling his friend Arjuna, never was there a time when you did not exist. Never will there be a time when you will cease to be. You are unborn and undying. You, the living entity, the soul, cannot be pierced by a sword, withered by the wind. You cannot be harmed in any way. You're eternal. 
so many places throughout the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is telling his friend Arjuna in this conversation, who you are. He gives Arjuna self-realization. First and foremost, before we talk about me, Krishna says, let me tell you who you are. You are eternal. You always have been. So if, if that's true, before I was in this body, I had to be somewhere. I had to be somewhere. Now, if you take it back to the ultimate, before I came into this material world, I was in the spiritual world. The Hindu philosophy is, I keep using Hindu because that's something you'll relate to. The Hindu philosophy is that the living entity always has been, and you always have had, this loving relationship with Krishna. That is your nature. To be loved and to love. To have this the presence of this wonderful entity, God, as your best friend and lover. You can't think of anything, anybody else. Okay? Now, if that's true, what are we doing in this material world? Now that's a question that uh, Vedic philosophers have pondered for thousands of years. There are many, many books written pondering that question. But those who become self-realized begin to understand why. Why am I in this material world? Because I wanted to see if there's anything better than Krishna. My dear Lord, I love you. You're wonderful. You're fabulous. Is there anything better than you? That's not a sinful thing. It's like a, a child may wonder. Like, you know, Dad, you're so strong. Is there anybody stronger than you? You know? So, Krishna is known as the fulfiller of all desires. He wants you to have what you want. For a love affair to exist between anybody, but especially if it's going to exist with the Supreme, there has to be free will. A love affair without free will makes you a prisoner. You know, the thing of uh, uh, the, the Hindus, the Hindu philosophy teaches is that Krishna knows what he is. You know, he's not surprised. Wow. Wow, I'm really great. Well, he knows. He's, he's a little cocky. You know, he's the most beautiful. He's the most wonderful. He knows that. So he's kind of cocky. Like, you know, I'm Krishna. You're not. And it's kind of attractive because he is. You know, if he's bragging and he's really not all that, then it's not very attractive. But when somebody is that and they're a little cocky, that's one of their attractive features, you know. But he wants nothing but absolute, pure, undivided love, just like you. So he's got to give you free will. Otherwise, you're his prisoner. And there's no taste of that. If I'm thinking, if I have you thinking that you don't have any choice, I'm the best and that's it. Just shut up and don't think about it. I'm the best. Be happy with that. That's tainted. He doesn't like that. He wants you to make the decision. For your love to be tasteful to him. 
for it to be sweet, you have to be the chooser. He can't force you. He doesn't want that. He could. He doesn't want that. And he knows he's the greatest. He knows that you're going to choose me anyway. So here you are with the Supreme, and you're wondering, is there anything better? And he's saying, well, how would you like to go find out? Now he knows there is no place. We're in heaven, the spiritual world, the eternal world. There's nothing else. There's nothing out there. But he doesn't want you to know that. So he's just kind of creates this material world. He says, well, why don't you go find out? Why don't you go check it out? Go see. I'll give you all facility so you can go and check out the material world. You can be a king. You can be a ruler. You can be incredibly famous. You can be infamous. But you have to pay according to what you do. I'm going to give you the law of karma. Everybody heard of the law of karma? It's getting more and more popular now. Forty years ago, nobody heard of karma. People were talking about karma. Karma basically means, as you sow, so shall you reap. What goes around comes around. As you do, you receive. And that's fair. That's the fairest deal you can ever get. Now, a lot of people complain about it, but think about it. You get to earn your own. In other words, right now, day by day, we're all building our next life. We're making our next life from our desires, which lead to our actions. Our actions lead to reactions. Are you familiar with the Bible? Where does it say is it Lord Jesus Christ that says that? As you sow, so shall you reap? It's New Testament, isn't it? Yeah. And there's some, you know, Old Testament. Uh, yeah, I, I, I used to know that, but I've forgotten. So it's, 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 it's a theme of the Bible, too. You know. In other words, you're not going to be able to go out there and do bad and get away with it. You're not going to go out there and do good without getting rewarded. You're going you're gonna to receive what energy you send out. It will come back on you. So Krishna is saying, here's this wonderful world. It's unlimited. You can go travel that. You're an unlimited living entity. Nothing can hurt you. You're going to assume body after body after body. Why? Why are there different bodies? Why are you going to take one body and she's going to take another body? You know? Just put some sense in it doesn't make any sense. Why am I in the body of a human being and someone else may be in the body of a pigeon? Now some, some religions believe, well, those animals don't have souls. Uh, Hindus believe there are souls everywhere. Every, the soul takes on different form. Body after body, you change. Soul goes, transmigrates, migrates from body to body. The Vedas say there are 8,400,000 species of life. 400,000 of those species are humanoid. Now we all know there aren't 400,000 species of human on planet Earth. So according to the Vedas, which is knowledge that 
is believed to come from Krishna. Krishna is saying there's humans on many other planets. This is a very big cosmos out here. And there are 8,400,000 species of life. Because there are 8,400,000 different desires. Now let me, let me make this clear. We perceive and we enjoy through what? Our senses. Exactly. What we can see, hear, taste, feel, smell. Okay? So, and we want to enjoy constantly. We're looking for enjoyment, isn't it? I mean, if you're in a situation like when you go to the doctor's office and you're supposed to be there at 2 o'clock and you show up at Five till 155. You're there five minutes early. And you sit down and you have to wait an hour and a half to get in. You're deprived. Your senses are deprived. You don't have anything munchy to eat, you know. There's there's nothing to taste, nothing beautiful to see, nothing nice to hear. Maybe they've got some CNN on a television or something like that, but enough of that already. You see. So you're uncomfortable and you get bored when you're deprived when your senses are kind of cramped. And that's not our nature. Our nature as eternal living entities is to be, uh, according to the Vedas, sat chit ananda. Sat means eternal. Chit means full of knowledge. And ananda means eternally blissful. So that's our nature, regardless of what body you have. It's your nature to always enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. If somebody says, well, you always want to enjoy, you know, you're weird. No, that's normal. You cannot overcome that desire to always want to enjoy. You can manage it, but you can't overcome it. Okay. So, if we, if we enjoy through our senses, how good are the senses of human beings? When you compare it to the animals, not so good. Animals can see better than us. An eagle can read the headline of a newspaper a mile away. He can see a lot better than we can. We can't even see a newspaper a mile away. He can read the headline. An eagle can fly so high and see fish five, six feet under the surface of the water. You see? And he knows to fly in such a way so his shadow doesn't go over the fish. Although some people say he doesn't have a soul. He's smart enough to do that. Bloodhounds can smell, I think, like, uh, I've heard like 150 times better than a human being. They can smell incredible. Everybody knows how the bloodhounds can smell. Uh, many animals can hear, all you know, dogs can hear things we can't hear. You ever been around a dog, they start barking. What are you barking at? But it's somebody down the street. You can blow a dog whistle, which we can't hear, but they can hear. Animals, snakes can see uh, uh, light rays that we can't see, that we don't even know exist. When it gets right down to it, the human beings don't have real good senses. We don't. Except for the sixth sense. The mind. According to the Vedas, the mind is the sixth sense. The mind interprets what the senses to the mind. The smell goes to the mind. And the mind gets to interpret how will I react. For an animal, 
the mind is smaller, so the ability to determine what I'm going to do or how I'm going to react to a different situation is smaller. Okay. All right. So, um, why are there different bodies? Because there are different desires. You, as a living entity, have different desires, and you're on this free ride through the material world to experience everything you can possibly desire. And I'm going to use a, a, an example which is kind of crude, so forgive me, but it's true. All right. Uh, human beings, if someone is a human being, and your chief desire of your, of your life is sex life, if you really like that more than anything, at the time of death, if that's what you really, really want, you've got the wrong body to be fully, to just enjoy sex constantly, always. The body of a pigeon is much better. The pigeon can have sex every 15 minutes. Between 12 and 15 minutes, a pigeon can have sex all day. You don't have to buy her dinner, take her to a movie. <laughs> you don't even have to get a room. You know? Nobody even cares. So, the pigeon senses, the animal senses are better than ours. Do they not enjoy it as much as human beings? Probably even more so. So if that's your desire, you can have it. If you have the desire to uh, eat, a tremendous eat constantly, there are bodies that do that. I've seen them in India. They have The hogs in India are different than the hogs in America. They eat constantly. They're eating, they're two, two, three activities. They're eating, having sex, and sleeping. You know? Basically, that's about all you ever see a hog doing in India. You know? Now, some people say, I don't want to be a hog. But if you think, well, what, what a life. If that's what drives you, free sex, as much as you want, all you want to eat of your favorite food, and sleep anywhere you want. You don't have to pay rent. It's a great life. So there are different desires that the living entity has. And in order for you to carry out those desires, there are different manifestations of the body. And different combinations of desires make up different bodies in themselves. So there are 8,400,000 different desires that we can have. So we choose a body according to our desire. That's the philosophy behind uh, uh, Hinduism. Now the Hindus know this, and they think, well, I don't want to be a hog. I don't want to be a dog. You know, I want to go to a better place at the time of death. See? I'm really looking out for old number one here. I don't want to be... I don't want to be a dog, and uh, I don't want to be a pigeon, and uh, every 15-minute thing. I'm not interested in that, you see. I want to go to the heavenly planets, you know, because of the heavenly planets. Now, there's a difference in the Hindu faith between the heavenly planets and the spiritual world, okay? The heavenly planets, there are many of them, each one of the demigods that they worship, other than Krishna, has his own planet, and you can go there, life span is 200,000 years. The climate is wonderful. 
It actually says in the Srimad Bhagavatam that of the topmost of the, of the heavenly planets, the streets are made of gold and the gates are made of pearls. It's amazing. When I read that, I thought, wow. It's a wonderful place. Everyone lives in fabulous houses. You see, there's plenty of sex life, plenty of eating. Everyone is beautiful. It's just wonderful. But it's temporary. Because you work, 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 work. You please Shiva. You please Ganesh. You do whatever. And you accumulate punya. At the time of death, you go to Indraloka, which is the topmost of the heavenly planets. And you spend 100,000, 200,000 years in just delight. And when the punya runs out, it's time to die. And you come back to the earthly planet. Taking a lot of the birth of a human being again. And you get to do it all again. Which means going to the temple, offering to Ganesh, offering to Shiva. Give me money in this life. Give me a beautiful life in the next life. And this is the motivating factor of uh, uh, Hinduism. All the time knowing that I can escape this cycle of birth and death. But if I do that, I've got to deal with Krishna. And I'm not ready for this love thing, you know. Krishna's so warm and fuzzy and it's, it's love and nothing but him. I have to give up my desires. You follow? Is, is this making sense? Or am I, I have a tendency to ramble sometimes. So if I'm rambling, just throw something at me. Does this make any sense? So basically, this is Hinduism. This is how it works. They're all... And it, it applies to many different religions. The details may be a little different, but it's pretty much the same. Why are there different uh, religions? Anyone, anybody want to offer a suggestion? According to the Vedas, why are there different religions? Isn't there one? Just because you have a different interpretation, isn't there one that's just it and that's it? You take this or there is nothing else? I always ask that when I, when I have discussions with people. How can an unlimited entity, the Supreme Godhead, how can we put him in a box and limit him to just, you know, if I'm a Muslim and I say, you need to be Muslim or you're a... Uh, an infidel. How can I do that? How can I say you take this religion and believe it this way, or you get nothing but suffering for eternity? How is this possible? Not possible. Now, God could do that. It is possible that He did. I guess it's possible that He said, all right, there's just one way. In other words, there's one way. It started 2,000 years ago. And you either do it that way or you're, you're going to suffer for eternity. Or there's just one way. How, long, how old is Islam? Islam is 1,500 years? Yeah. So there's one way. It started 1,500 years ago. And you either do it that way or you're an infidel and you're just nothing more than an animal. And you'll just die into oblivion. Or maybe you're a Buddhist. There's just one way. You die. You're going to die, and you're just going to go into nirvana. 
Does anybody know what nirvana means? Have you heard this term, nirvana? Not the group, not the <laughs> It's a Sanskrit word. Nirvana. Nirvana. Do you know what nirvana means? Anybody want to guess? Come on. Huh? Perfect place. Perfect place. And that's not what it means. <laughs> that's the interpretation we have. In Sanskrit, the word nirvana means nothing. It means void. Nothing. So the Buddhists say that everybody else is wrong but us. Because uh, when you die, there's nothing but void. You go into a nirvanic situation, which is peace. Peace, to be away from stuff. The stuff that ag agitates you. The material world is an agitating place. So if you follow the teachings of Buddha, you will go into nirvana, nothing. Finally away from all the things that drive you crazy. And you can do that. Krishna doesn't say that's not right. He's unlimited. You want that? You can have it. The Hindus have the feeling, the belief, that if at the time of death, people ask me this all the time, if at the time of death, if I want to go to Lord Jesus Christ, what's going to happen to me according to the Hindus? And the answer is, you go to Lord Jesus Christ. The Hindus don't believe that ours is the only way and everybody else's. Of course, you're going to go to Christ. You wanted Him. You've worshipped Him. You desire a relationship with Him. At the time of death, He promised that He would get, He would take you. Why would He lie? That's the way the Hindus look. You know, they have no doubt. No doubt whatsoever. At the time of death, you, you achieve Lord Jesus Christ. He will take you to His Father. And His Father is Krishna. That's the Hindu philosophy. Of course, uh, is it all wrong or is it all right? It's all right. Why are there different religions? Because you have different desires to relate with God. If you want to relate with God in awe and reverence, let's say that's your feeling. You really, whenever you see God, you just want to fall flat and worship awe and reverence. Oh my goodness. There are different expansions, there are different, uh, uh, let's say, expansions of Krishna that demand, like Narayan, Narayan is an expansion of Krishna, that demand awe and reverence. You see, very beautiful, wonderful, attractive, but not somebody you go up to and hug his neck. It's just so majestic, kingly, opulent beyond belief, awe and reverence. If you want to have a fearsome relationship with God, He has forms that you'll fear. Oh, you'll fear. Trust me. He can be the most fearsome. If you want to fear Him, He can strike the fear and have that relationship with you. But these relationships, according to the Hindu faith, 
are not going to last because every time you get, let's say you get, you get your nirvana. So you've got, now you've got nothing. Now you're away from all the things that, that agitate you. But you're still conscious. How long is that going to last? Sooner or later you're going to want something else. Let's say that, you're, that you practice the, uh, the yoga system and you achieve mystic yoga. And at the time of death you can go merge into the impersonal light, the Brahman. So you're there and you have what's the Sanskrit word, shanti, peace. So now you have peace. So here you are, you're in the bright light, and you're very peaceful. Aren't you going to want something else? What about the, the L word? Love? If you're in nirvana, how do you love? Who do you love? If you're in the impersonal Vermont, if you're just a merged in with the light, how are you going to love? What are you going to love? What's there, what is there to love? Oh, you're peaceful. You feel blissful. And this could go on for a long time, but you're eternal. You've got all the time in the world. When the desire for love comes up, you will come back to this material world and continue your search for some for a love better than Krishna. And Krishna knows. The reason why he's so free to let you go and wander is that first of all, you're eternal, you can't be hurt. And I'm Krishna. There's nothing better than me. You'll be back. You know that saying, there's a saying, if you love something, let it go. Krishna believes, he feels that way. You know. You can go look for something better than me. You're not going to find it. But I'm not going to tell you that. You have to go. So one achieves what the Hindus believe is the supreme liberation going back home, back to Krishna Loka, which is outside of the material world, when you desire that you want to love the supreme. Okay? Now, um, or should we have a, a break? Yeah, it might be a good time for a break. Yeah. And then uh, when we come back, let's, let's have some questions about that. Yeah, and I'll right. tell you, you probably, probably we're, at, we're at the point where we're going to make it all clarify the difference in forms of, of worship, why we worship, and who we would worship. So when you come back, let's have a question. Let's take about five minutes. Good break. All right, so we've been talking about this love affair with the Supreme and how, uh, due to our desire to please ourselves and do what we want and to ask for what we want, that's been kind of set aside. See? So, birth after birth, we're looking out for us. 
So I ask this a lot, and it kind of put the, everything into perspective. <clears throat> so bear with me. Let's say that when we're finished, Bob's got this really nice phone that's got a camera on it. So if we all get together, and he takes a group photo, okay? When he passes the phone around and it's got the group photo on it, who's the first person you're going to look for? Good old number one. Nothing wrong with that. That is why we're in the material world. That's why we're all here. Because we're looking for me. It's I, me, and mine. It's called uh, false ego. Okay? False ego means when you say, I am, and end that sentence with anything other than an eternal servant of the Supreme. Because that's what you are. You're an eternal loving servant of the supreme lovable object. So, but if I think I am an engineer, oh, you may be doing the activities of an engineer, but you're not. When this body's finished, you're going to go somewhere else and do something else. See? We are living entities because we're part and parcel of the supreme, of God. We are also, to some degree, unlimited. We, we don't have very many limits placed on us. And Krishna has this feeling that as you desire, I want you to have it. You know? As a matter of fact, if you want to become, uh, if you read the, the Vedas, if you want to become something like an atheist, well, Krishna gives you the faith to be a good atheist. He's not afraid of a word. He knows that he's Krishna. He knows that He's supreme. He knows that He's eternal and that you're eternal. And that up until this period of you coming to the material world to look for something better for eternity, which is a very long time, you guys were together. Joined at the hip, as you might say, in a loving relationship. You see? But you chose to go look for something better. And He said, hey, as you desire it, I'll create it. I want you to see whatever you can possibly imagine. I've got 8,400,000 species that you can, you can go and try to enjoy separate from me. It's okay. I'm not mad. So, so all through these trips through the material world as humans, we worship. We may be one religion one lifetime, one religion another, depending on our relationship and our con concept of the Supreme. We may worship in so many ways, but it's generally based on a similar basis. I want. I want something from you. Even if it's so, it, it, it's, it, even if it's to the point where it's simple and innocent, like, I just want you to save me. You see? My dear Lord, I want you to give me salvation. At the end of this human life, I want salvation. Nothing wrong with that. But it is pretty much in the same uh, category as the people who want, I want wealth. I want fame. I want to be safe. I want to be saved from something bad. Because it's still about me and I'm in the center. It's 
not bad. I'm not making fun of anybody or anybody's faith. I'm leading to the point why the Hindus don't approach Krishna. Because if you approach Krishna, then you forget all about you. And you start thinking all about Him. So, the Vaishnavas are the ones who worship Vishnu. Vishnu is the expansion of Krishna that deals with the material world. Okay? When you start to worship Krishna, you turn it around. I want nothing for myself. My dear Lord, I just want... I want to satisfy you. I want to do what you want. I want to prepare food that you would like to eat. And he says throughout the Vedas what he likes. Categories. He doesn't give exact recipes. He says what he likes. What's offered, what you can offer me with love and devotion that I will accept. And I want to do that for you. I have no, no desire to please me. I just want to please you. I want to know what you want, my, my dear Lord. So the Vaishnava, his faith starts to change. And this is why the Hindus don't like to get too close to Krishna, because it starts to change. You start to fall in love with Krishna, and you can't get him out of your mind. Everything you're doing is for him. Every thought you have is for him. I just want to please you, my dear Lord. So Krishna says, in the early part of the Bhagavad Gita, he tells Arjuna, I want you to have faith. Have faith in me. And then in the beginning of the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that I want you to know me. In other words, faith has to turn into something. Faith in and of itself is not the end. Okay? If I have, if I buy an investment, I have faith that the investment will grow. If it doesn't, if I lose money, my faith was misplaced. If it does grow, now my faith has done, it's changed into what? Knowing. Faith should lead you to knowing. If it doesn't, you've done something wrong. Your faith wasn't good. You've cast your faith in the wrong direction or the wrong thing. If I'm if I have faith that I'm Superman and I could jump off the building and I can fly, that's casting my faith in the wrong direction. Faith must turn into knowing. You have to have the realization. Krishna says, you don't wait until the time of death. You will know me. He says, actually, know me in full. And he expects you to do that in this lifetime if you learn to love it, if you learn to serve it. It's not, it's not something that you just have faith. Let me check with you at death. You know, after you die, let's see if it was true. The results should come. Krishna says the results should come prior to death. You should experience. As a matter of fact, liberation, according to the Vaishnavas, and the Vaishnavas are considered to be, um, I don't want to make it out like they're better, 
in the material world, we, we, we have this way of thinking, well, my team is better than your team. My dog is stronger than your dog. My dad could beat your dad up. There's always, there's this competitive nature. So it's tough to talk about religion without somebody saying, well, I think mine is better. Or, no, let's not think in terms of that. Let's think of, in terms of different result, okay? Whatever your faith is, you will get a result if it's bona fide. I mean, if you believe that, uh, a banana is a supreme personality of Godhead, you're not going to get the result that you want. But if you if it's bona fide, you will get that result. You see. And the Hindus consider the Vaishnavas as kind of like the, the cream of the crust because they've given up the desire for punya. They don't want anything. They just want Krishna. And when you do this, Krishna gets so flattered. He's like, me? You just want me? God, it's been 60 million years since you've said that. 60 million years since you left. It's been 60 million or 60 trillion since I've heard you say that you love me in that way. And you want to please me above you or anything. It's like, this is wonderful. You can actually, you can actually, if you love the Supreme, you can wow him with your love. He is all about love. We're all about love. We come from him, so there is that loving thing. It's all about love. Krishna knows that he's the Supreme. He knows he's the, the toughest guy on the block. He doesn't have to prove that to anybody. He's all about love. So in the Vaishnava faith, it's said that the, the devotee of Krishna, once you approach Krishna with love and devotion, when you achieve the state of Krishna Prema, Krishna Prema means ultimate love. You know, in English, we only have that one word, love. <clears throat> you know, in Sanskrit, there's over 100 words for love. In English, we use it to apply to anything. You know, like, gee, I love your sunglasses. I love your hair. I love your car. I, 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 don't you love this weather? And I love you. All right, well, do you love me like you like her sunglasses? Or, you know. In other words, I've got to kind of fill in the blanks here. You're saying you love me. And so it's it really kind of in my head what you actually mean. Do you love me more than your dog? Do you love me more than football? I mean, I mean, I think you do. And after time, if I if I give faith, I'll find out. Maybe you do. Maybe you love me more than football. You see. But this word prema, it's P-R-E-M-A, pronounced prem. Krishna prem means the ultimate love, meaning to love him more than you love yourself. Once the living entity comes to the realization that when we have what's called self-realization, I'm an eternal living entity. Nothing can happen to me. You can force me out of this body, but I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to be. You know, nothing can, can keep me from being. So I'm okay. I don't have to worry about me. I'm concerned about Krishna. I want to know if he's happy. 
Now, a Hindu may say, well, of course he's happy. He's God. You know he's happy. Why are you worrying about God? He has everything. If he doesn't have, he can, he can create. He can be happy. That's also true for Christians and Muslims. Why should I worry about God? He's the all-powerful. Why should I be concerned about it? He's got everything, and if he doesn't have it, he can, you know, I can't do this thing like he can, you know. I've got to be concerned about me. So when our love for Krishna becomes perfect, the image of him being God goes away. You cannot have the kind of love that Krishna wants and think of him as God. In the liberated stage, in the spiritual world, in Krishna Loka, Krishna is not God. He is. But nobody thinks of him as God. You can't get that close to somebody that you believe is God. You know, I mean, if you have, let's say, you know, I'm trying to think of that. your spouse, you know, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you find out that they're the supreme personality of Godhead. They are God. Well, that's really going to change your relationship now, isn't it? You know, you guys like, I hope I've never been offensive. Well, no, no, it's okay if you leave your underwear on the bathroom floor. I'm sorry that I complained about that. Are we good here? Are we, are we okay? You know? Love you. See what I mean? I mean it really kind of changes things. You, know? you may get angry and say, you know what? Oh, never mind, never mind. Krishna wants you to say, you know what? You just made me so mad. And he says, oh, really? How's that? Oh, it's when you do this and... God, you're beautiful. You see what I mean? There has to be the ability to be close. For if you have two lovers, each lover has to have the right to chastise the other one. You see what I mean? If you're going to have a, a joking relationship, love and humor go together. If you're going to have a joking relationship, is God the only one that has the right to, to, to joke? That's kind of dry. Don't you have a right to joke too in an equal loving relationship? So the image of you dealing with the supreme Godhead, you have to get over that. As you start to love Krishna and serve Him, it's called bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is considered the topmost of the yoga system. Bhakti yoga means to serve God with love and devotion in all of your thoughts, all of your words, and all of your actions. And as you do that, you become consumed by it. And he becomes less and less of a God because he gets closer and closer and closer. You can actually feel his closeness. You see. And he's not the kind of guy that you're worried about making angry. The Vaishnavas never worry about angering. Because they're only thinking about pleasing. You see. As a matter of fact, he has different relationships with different living entities. Some living entities want to have a relationship 
a loving relationship like that of a mother and son. And so Krishna says that we can have that relationship. You be the mother, I'll be the son. If that's your desire, we can do that. So you can't have a son if you think he's the supreme Godhead. How can you spank him when he's naughty? See? So there are many stories in the Vedas of Krishna taking the position of, of the son and being a very naughty boy and being punished. Uh, starting in November, we're going to have what's called the month of Damodar. Kartik in India. Everybody celebrates. It's the most. Uh, it's the coming of fall. The hot summer is over. The rainy season is gone, and you go into the autumn, a month of Kartik, and they celebrate the relationship that Krishna has with his mother. Now you may say, well, God doesn't have a mother, but if you have a desire to be his mother, intense. That's all you want, and he'll give you that desire. He's a perfect son. But in the month of Damodar, this word Damodar means uh, Damo. Damodar means one who's tied up. So it's a story that they celebrate all over India. Uh, Krishna is a naughty boy. He's stealing butter and yogurt. And his mother is trying to punish him. And everyone, he, all the neighbors are complaining. Your son keeps stealing the yogurt. We're hanging it high in the rafters to keep it away from but he figures out a way to climb up there. Somehow or other he can get it. You have to do something. And so you, you the mother, you chase him down and you think, I've tried everything with you. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tie you up. And I can do nothing else. You're terrorizing all the neighbors. So his mother, her name is Yashoda, as she goes to tie, she takes a rope, she starts to tie it around his waist. Starts out with a rope that's like four feet long. He's just a little boy. When she gets around, it's, it's two fingers too short. So then she takes another rope and ties that together and wraps that around him. And it's still two fingers too short. And so she keeps tying rope after rope after rope. And she's intent on making him behave. And she starts to perspire. The combs and the flowers in her hair start to fall out. And she's getting all frustrated. And Krishna looks at her in love, and the next time she goes to put the rope around her, she succeeds. She ties it. Even though he's God, she doesn't believe he's God. But she's conquered him with her love, and he surrenders. So she ties him to a grinding stone so that he can't go, he can't get away. And he's God. He could take the grinding stone and. But because of the love of his mother, he's been conquered by her love. He doesn't. You see, and he crawls and pulls the, uh, the rock. And he was a baby. So This is celebrated all over India for the entire month. And it's said in India, anything that you do in this month, any spiritual activity you do is multiplied times a million times. So of course the temples are full this time full because whatever you do whatever you ask for you get the Vaishnavas simply go and ask how can I serve you please engage me in your service that's the difference so some people may wonder well but if I stop thinking about me 
and I stop only thinking about God, where does that leave me? I'm going to end up with nothing. You got the other people going to the temple and they're asking for Mercedes and they're getting Mercedes and they got big houses and yachts and all kinds of money. What do I get? What's the answer to that? What do you get if you just turn all your attention to service and love of Krishna? You get him. He'll belong to you. Krishna says in the Upadesha Rita Sindhu, it's a big book, he says that for those who perform loving devotional service unto me, it is as if they have purchased me. They own me. When you totally love him with Krishna Prema, you own him. He becomes totally captivated. Keep in mind when we started out, we told you that we discussed how each and every one of you is his absolute favorite at the same time. So when you give him love and devotion, he surrenders. Now all through the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is asking, those who want to come to me, I ask for surrender. I want you to surrender to me. So that's what he asked. Now, in the material, falling on material ears, that word surrender, that's not a very good word, you know? I mean, that's what Japan did after we dropped three atomic weapons on them. You know, General Lee surrendered to General Grant. Hitler had to surrender. You see what I mean? Surrender, in material terms, doesn't sound like a very nice thing to do. But between lovers, there has to be surrender. Isn't it? Lovers surrender to each other. If it's one-sided, it's lopsided. It doesn't work. So, so what Krishna is, is asking for is surrender. I want you to surrender to me in love and devotion. And as soon as you do, that's immediately followed by His surrender to you. You get Him. Even though you're only looking out for what He wants, you want to satisfy his transcendental senses. You don't care anything about yourself. He gives you everything. I've actually seen this happen. My guru came to America in 1965. He started this International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And he came from a small village in India. He was an educated man. And his guru said, Take this philosophy, this Vaishnava philosophy, and spread it to the Western world, especially America. So he came to America and he had $7 in his pocket. And he wanted nothing but to serve Krishna. And he wandered around New York City for a year with nothing, barely able to eat. Every day praying, my dear Lord, I don't know why you've brought me here, but I'm here. I'm here to serve you in whatever way you want me to serve. And then Krishna gave him everything. He sent him followers. He had no desire for fame, profit, adoration, or distinction, yet Krishna gave him fame, profit, adoration, distinction. And within 12 years, he opened 108 centers all over the world. In every country in the world except for two at that time. So, 
It wasn't his desire. His desire wasn't to be a great person, famous. But Krishna will give you because he wants you to have. You don't want it. I want to do for you, my Lord. He's thinking, no, but I want to do for you. You see. But my Lord, how can I serve you? You can accept what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a wonderful life. And if you love me, you will accept it. So Krishna may make his devotee rich. The devotee's not looking to be rich, but Krishna makes him rich, knowing you'll use it in my service. You're not stingy about this. So love means sharing. If you get married, husband and wife share the finances. If you're an intimate lover of the Supreme, you're sharing everything with Him. All of His energy is shared. So that's the philosophy of, of Vaishnavism. Why don't the Hindus approach Krishna? Because they want to keep Him at arm's length. You know, they'll lose their material desires. And I've, I've had them, I've argued with them about it. And they say, oh no, Swamiji, no, that's not true. And I say, come on, really? Well, yes, actually, <laughs> it is true. It is. Not ready. I mean, I know he's there and he's, he's wonderful and someday we'll have a loving relationship, but not today. It's like we were talking about earlier. professor said earlier, he gave a good analogy. You know, some people might say, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be a Mother Teresa. I'd like to surrender to my fellow man on the level of Mother Teresa. But not today. Maybe not next week, but someday. So, today it's all about me. Someday it won't be. So, alright. Any questions or comments? Criticisms. It's okay to disagree. Yes. No, no. Uh, it's kind of strange. My mother is a Jew. She wasn't a practicing Jew. She married a non-Jew, my father. And uh, even though I wasn't a practicing Jew, all the Jews considered me a Jew. We still do. The Jews consider because of your mother. If your mother was a Jew, you're a Jew. So I didn't know growing up very much about the Jewish faith. But later on I learned little tidbits. I actually went to Baptist church. Went to Baptist church all through my childhood. And the reason why is because there was a to be honest, there was a pretty girl that went I went to school with and her father was the pastor. That's always the case. You know, I mean, she was the prettiest girl in school, and her father was the pastor there, and she asked me, would you come to church? And I said, you bet. <laughs> and I went every Sunday and every Wednesday, and, you know. But I was one of these kids that asked, you know, questions. And, uh, I wanted, uh, uh, her mother was the Sunday school teacher, and uh, she used to get a little miffed because I'd ask questions. Do you mean to tell me that... And she'd say, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Somebody else got a question. It sounds like you're Jewish discomfort. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. So, but no, I wasn't. I was 20, uh, 24.
Well, I had, uh, somehow or other, I, I came from a very poor family. Uh, somehow or other, I got a taste of success very early in life. It was, uh, the, the, the ethic was if you work hard, you're an American, if you work hard, you'll get ahead in life. And so uh, my mother had always taught me that way, and so I, I did that. You know, I worked. We were so poor I couldn't go to college. So I decided, well, I'm going to get a job <clears throat> and I'll support myself, save up, and then I'll go to college. So uh, a couple of years out of, after I got out of high school, I got into sales. And I became very successful, like at 18, 18, 19 years old. And so uh, I worked harder and got more and more successful, and things were really, really good for me. I mean, I had a lot of money. Uh, I became number one salesman in a national company. And, uh, you know, I started talking about going back to school with my the vice president of the sales company that I worked for. And he said, well, that's that's really great, but what's it going to give you? You've, got, you've already got a great future. You keep doing like you're, you're doing, you're going, to, you're going to be president of the company someday. You know, I mean, just hang in there. And I thought, well, okay. But I still had this desire for knowledge. But, so anyway, as the years went on, uh, I got to where I had plenty of everything. You know, this was in the 70s, early 70s. And I was kind of a child of the 60s in a way, but I, I couldn't be a, a total hippie because I, I wanted to work and have something. And a lot of my hippie friends didn't want to work and have anything. So I had this material desire. Because I was poor, I wanted to be rich. And it seemed like the more money I got, the more I wanted. And I worked around the clock. And I had all kinds of toys. <clears throat> I had couple of Harley Davidson motorcycles, a Jeep, I had boats, I had all kinds of things. I played golf in the Vegas Country Club. You know, I'm 24 years old. So I was thinking, oh, life is great. And one day I was thinking, I was practicing my golf swing, and I'm thinking, man, I've got a great job. I don't have to work that hard. It was easy. It's like everything I touched turned to gold. And I thought, wow, I wonder what's next. I've got all this great stuff looking in my garage and all the toys that I have, I'm thinking, maybe I'd get a jet ski or so. I don't know, what do I want, you know? And then I thought, I wonder what my future holds. And then I thought, it's kind of like this word just came out of nowhere as if it were spoken. I don't know if it was or not, but somehow or other, the word came into my head, I'm saying, what else can I expect? And the word was, more more. The only thing I have to look forward to is more of what I've got. And what I had wasn't really making me feel, I mean, I was glad, I was thankful, but it didn't make me feel blissful. You know, I had some religion, but it really wasn't doing what I wanted to do. The wealth that I had, the success that I had, really wasn't doing what I hoped for. I mean, I knew there's got to be something better. But if I take and, and add zeros on the end of my bankbook, if the, if the number gets bigger, that doesn't mean I'm going to be happy. You know, and so I just, I hadn't prayed for a few years, and I said, you know, I just prayed, my, my dear Lord, and I, you know, here it's, it's me again. 
I mean, I'm thankful for everything you've given me, but I just kind of feel like there's there's got to be something better. And, uh, you know, it sure would be nice if you would kind of give me a hint, show yourself a little bit, because I'm ready to... I'm ready to drop this if there's something better. You know. I mean, I need to know a little bit about you. And so a couple of days later, a friend of mine uh, was traveling. You know, in those days, a lot of the hippies liked to hitchhike across the United States. You know. So a friend of mine was hitchhiking, and he ran into a devotee of Krishna, and he brought Bhagavad Gita. And he came in, and he, I said, what's that you have? He said, oh, it's Bhagavad Gita. It's about Krishna consciousness. And I thought, well, I've heard of that. And uh, he told me a little bit about the philosophy. And I said, well, that sounds familiar. And he said, have you heard of it? I said, no, I don't think I have. But it sure sounds familiar. I said, give me the book. And so I took the book and uh, I read the book. And I thought, okay, I get it. I understand. I see what you want. And I spent many, many years after that just trying to give up the material desires and was ultimately successful to give up most of my material desires. I mean, I still desire to eat, but I'm at the point now where, at this stage in life, where I don't live anywhere. I don't have a home. I don't have an apartment or a house. I've got a, a, a transportation. Uh, I don't have an income. But yet Krishna gives me everywhere. He sends me around the world. And sometimes I'm living in a palatial situation, eating food that's far rich for my health, I can't have to tell people, no, no, I, I can't eat it. That's too nice, you know, you see. So Krishna starts to give everything. You know, if, I, if I desire to go to India to teach, somehow or other the money comes. You know, I, I don't even have to go back. Hey, can you give me some money? I'm going to it just starts to come in. That's where I go, but people offer a donation. And if, uh, if, 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 if I'll get invited to India to, to do some teaching, and I think, yeah, I'd really like to go. Within an, a few days, people will be offering donations, unsolicited, and they're much bigger than they were before. So the devotee of Krishna gets to the point that we're like a leaf that's on a tree that falls into a river. You just go with the flow. You let him drive it. And it's always real sweet. He's got really great plans. So we give up our plans, and we're always curious. You know, what are you going to do next? So what, what's next? So it's been like that for the last 40 years. You know, I needed to buy a new vehicle. I'll give you. Uh, let me give you. <laughs> this this is something that happened a, uh, a year and a half ago. I was in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, <coughs> and. Uh, on my way driving there from Texas, this car that I had, this, this uh, vehicle, was starting to act up. It was, it was jerking and wasn't really performing well. So the day after I get to, to Knoxville, I, I take it over to this garage, and the guy says, your transmission's about to go out. You know? And uh, so I'm thinking, wow, really? So as I drove it around day after day, it's getting worse and worse, and he was right. So uh, I got another opinion, and then, yeah, the transmission, you gotta, you got to have the transmission rebuilt. I'm thinking, oh, man, how much is this going to cost? It's going to cost $2,200. I thought, oh, hey, you know, I had 
maybe a couple hundred dollars, you know. <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm staying in a motel that some Indian gentleman was letting me stay in, you know, eating food that people that I knew were inviting me over for, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I can't ask my friends to help me. I can't afford this. You know, I just, I can't ask anybody. So that night, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So that night, they had the biggest hailstorm in maybe 100 years in Knoxville. I mean, the hail came, and it just beat my vehicle up, just beat it to pieces. Uh, I mean, it didn't destroy anything, but it was just made little dents all over it. Still drivable, didn't break any windows. Mechanically, it was great, but dents all over it. And so uh, I took it to the uh, State Farm Agency. You know, I had State Farm Insurance. And my mother always said, always insure your vehicle. You know, so I took it over there, and the guy said, well, or estimated damage to be $3,200. And you got a $1,000 deductible, and he wrote me out a check for $2,200. I took it over and gave it to the guy, and he put a new transmission in that vehicle, and I was on my way. So, I mean, that kind of thing has been happening for a long time. So, that's just one way. Is that a good answer? Anybody else? Somebody else had a question. Explain the ashram. Oh, the ashram. Any, have you ever heard that word, ashram? Anybody ever heard that? Ashram means, a, uh, it's a Sanskrit word meaning a place of spiritual advancement. And we often apply it to a building. You know, that's uh, yogi somebody's ashram. You know, a building where you go, like a church. It's often applied like that, and you can use it, but it's actually meant to be a, a portion of your life, okay? Uh, in the Vedas, the Hindu philosophy is that you start out uh, early in life as brahmachari. Brahmachari means you're a student. You're learning about life, okay? Uh, at some point, you're going to take up, that's, that's an ashram, the brahmachari ashram, your single student. At some point, you go from there into the Grihasta ashram. Grihasta is householder. You get married. Okay? So now you, you have a spouse, offspring, and uh, children. Then you go from there into Vanaprast, which is retired life. You know, you hand your business over to your children, and you spend your, your life uh, studying getting your spiritual life perfected. Now that you have time that you didn't have when you were out making money, now you have time to get your life together spiritually, and then ultimately you take sannyas. And sannyasi is someone who's just a renounced monk, put on this color instead of the grihastas, the married people, they wear white, and the, the monks, the renounced monks, wear saffron color. And it means that you give up material possessions and desires and you own nothing but when you do that as I said Krishna typically gives you everything you don't want anything but Krishna gives you plenty of everything so uh, so those are the ashrams Brahmachari, Grihasta, uh, Vanaprast and Sanyas so those are the four social orders then uh, there are four um, four orders You've, has anybody heard of the caste system? 
Right? The caste system is a, is a perfect way of running society, but it got a little twisted when the Muslims invaded, and then again after the, the British took over India, it got really twisted. <clears throat> but if you go back several hundred years, the caste, and, and thousands of years before that, the caste system meant that you are, you are in a particular qualification depending on your ability. Now there is Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra. Now the Brahmins are the teachers, instructors, priests, people who are into studying, accumulating knowledge, teaching, spreading knowledge. And that's really all they're really interested in doing. Then there are the Vaishyas. The Vaishyas are the ones who feed everybody. They, they, they're the farmers, the bankers, the business people, the manufacturers. You see, they employ everybody. Uh, the Chatriyas are the soldiers and the police force. They enforce the laws. The Brahmins, the thinkers, the teachers, they come up with what the laws should be. The Chatriyas enforce all the laws. The Vaishyas run business and give everybody occupation. And the Shudras, they're not really expert at anything else, but they assist everybody else, you know? And we can see that in our lives, we can see how people we know and ourselves fit into these categories. It's just natural. It's a natural division of society. See, there are people who are Brahmins, and you can see people who are just born to be policemen or soldiers. That also includes, the Chhatris include the president, the senators, although in this day and age, I don't know, the president and the senators don't seem to be very much like real Chhatris, you know. Chhatri is supposed to be brave and protector, you see. Honest protector. All four classes serve the others. It's considered that it's like a body. The Brahmins are the head of the social body. The Chhatriyas are the arms for defending. The Vaishyas are the stomach. They feed everybody. And the Shudras are the legs of the body. They make everything work, you see. So we can see this. There are many people who are uh, Shudras. Nothing wrong with being a Shudra. You're not, you're not a police guy. You're not a teacher. You're not really good at business. But if somebody wants a road made, man, I can, I can run a road grader, and I can do this. I can do this better than the Kshatriya can. Of course, he's a better, he's a better soldier than I am. You see what I mean? So there are natural divisions according to your tendencies. So that was the caste system. But during the rule of the British, it kind of got to where if you're born in the, in the family of a Shudra, even though you may be really intelligent, and actually a Brahmin, you have to stay sutra. You have to work and dig ditches, you know. And if you were born in a family of a Brahmin, even though you had no qualification, you were still a Brahmin. So the whole thing got twisted, and it, it kind of went away. About a hundred years ago, it kind of disappeared. <coughs> but it's still there, and it still works. Everybody is one category or another. All right. What else? Questions? Comments? Questions? Surely I'll have a question. <laughs> Gotta have some question. 
<laughs> so, one good question is, how do you be a Vaishnava? How do you be one of these people? You know, what makes a Vaishnava different from somebody who just wants God to give me, give me, give me? And again, that's not bad. Because if you want, give me, give me, give me, God's the perfect guy to go to. Doesn't make him angry. You know, doesn't hurt his feelings. But how do we transcend? How do we go from that, I want you to give me, to where I want for you to let me give you? So it starts by devotional service. Perform service with love and devotion. Now in the beginning, we do it because we know it's the right thing to do. After a while, you develop some attraction. After a while of attraction, you develop attachment. You become attached to being his loving servant. So one thing that the Vaishnavas do uh, is mantra meditation. <clears throat> Have you heard of mantra? The word mantra? It's pronounced mantra, but in, in America they, they usually say mantra. You ever heard mantra? A mantra is a sound vibration. Okay? So, uh, when you meditate on sound, now, there are, uh, meditation is only as potent as the object of your meditation. Unless you're saying, well, I just want to meditate just to relax. Well, then you can try to meditate on nothing, you know, and get some relaxation. But if you want to make spiritual advancement, you have to meditate on something that has some potency. See? So, it's very difficult for us to do that because what where do I where do I start? You see? So the Brahmins <coughs> they vibrate these mantras. And the mantras are uh, they're spiritual. They're not material. It's not a material sound vibration. It's a spiritual sound vibration. And by vibrating that sound and by hearing it, you make spiritual advancement. So there are many different mantras, there are thousands of different, but there's one called the Maha Mantra. Maha in Sanskrit means the greatest, the topmost. So the Maha Mantra is the one that you vibrate, that you chant, if you want to become surrendered servant to Krishna. There are other mantras you can chant for other things, but when you want to be Krishna's lover and to have an eternal loving relationship with him and nothing else, then you chant this Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And you say that again and again and again. And you meditate on the sound vibration, and you hear it as you say it. Now, who are we praying to? It's a prayer. This mantra is a prayer. Hare. Hara is Radha, Krishna's feminine energy. If you want to get to Krishna, you have to go through her. So you can't approach it directly. You have to go through her. So Hare, Hare is praying to Krishna's feminine energy. Hare Krishna and Krishna. And you're begging, please engage me in your loving devotional service. <clears throat> so that's the, the definition of that prayer. So it's, it's supreme if you want to achieve loving devotional service. Okay? <clears throat> if you want something else, you chant something else. What else? Anything else? 
Yes? How do you go about meditation? Meditation doesn't really require much, except um, <clears throat> you need to be in a place that you're not going to be distracted. Okay, in the beginning. Um, a quiet place, maybe a little secluded. Um, and you sit, it should be kind of peaceful. No TV going, no music, nothing to distract. And then you just chant, relaxed, you know, and peaceful. Chant, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. You can lock the fingers together, you know, sit in the lotus position. You can walk, you can sit in a different position. It's not required, you know, but if you do that again and again, then if you, if you continually do that, it will start to take over. So that when you stop, so now it's time to go to school. And I've been chanting for, say, 15, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever. I've been chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Rama. You know, and as you chant, you may change the meter a little bit. And you kind of get into it, you know. You know, singing a little, do it like you start, you start to enjoy it. So then when, okay, now it's time to go to school. All right. So I stop, and I walk out, I get in my car, and I'm driving to school, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do in school. But in the background, my mind is going, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. It continues. So the meditation continues. It'll continue to be in the uh, position of, uh, the Sanskrit word is samadhi. Samadhi means total meditation. Now some people think that samadhi means <clears throat> you're sitting on a mountain in the Himalayas, Himalayas, and you're away from everybody, and you're just in a trance. It can mean that. But pure samadhi means that your thought never changes. You're fixed on your goal of serving Krishna. And everything you do has the purpose of making him happy. All the time, you, you, the, 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 the mantra is, is busy in your mind. You become attached to it. You like the sound of it. And when you're distracted to the point where you're not hearing it, you think, wow, something's wrong. Oh, I'm not thinking about it. So you get back on track. So, so it should lead to samadhi, which, which means you never lose sight of your goal. You're not distracted. Good question. Come on, that was a good question. Anybody? Can anybody top that question? Let's see. Huh? All right. I think I think I've kept you long enough. I sure appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Oh, we've got a sheet over here. Um, we've got some books. If, if anybody's interested in a book, they're free. If you give a donation, that's fine. Uh, if you'd like more information, you can put your name in your phone or email or Facebook, however you communicate. People are communicating by Facebook a lot. Yeah, so you can put your Facebook. I'm on Facebook if you want to visit me. It's Jivananda. You can do that little thing where you can say, look for your friends. Jivananda Das. It's J-I-V-A-N-A-N-D-A. Das, 
Uh, yeah, Bob's going to have a, a monthly greeting here. Everybody get together, have some really good food, some yoga food, um, and discuss philosophy. What your discussion? Not just, not just not just ours. This is your feedback. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Um, that's it. Um, great chat.